Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to, where are we? Mythgard Academy. That's where we are. This is session number 14 <clears throat> on the War of the Jewels. And uh, uh, we are uh, in real time. It's been uh, quite a while. We've had a, a number of uh, sort of summertime delays. It's summertime here, and my family's been doing stuff on Wednesday evenings and traveling and, and such. So I've not been around for a little bit, but excited to get back into things. Tonight we're going to be looking... Um, so we're in the, the later stages of the War of the Jewels, um, and uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the uh, the, the Alfwina chapter. There's a the short chapter on Alfwina. So we finished The Wanderings of Hurin, which is good, and I hope we've all had enough time to sort of recover from that. Um, but we're going to be looking at the Alfwina and uh, um, uh, what's his face, Dirhaval chapter, and then the Maiglin chapter. So we'll see how much of the Maiglin chapter we can get through. The thing that primarily struck me uh, about um, these chapters, it's it seems to me that the further we get through the history of Middle Earth, the more Christopher. Uh, as editor, uh, begins to reflect and discuss the problems of editing the Silmarillion. Um, even coming to the point, and I, I know we ended with this slide last time, but I wanted to, I wanted to come back to it. I wanted to begin with it uh, because this this seems uh, this seems really crucial. Let me just reread this last slide from last time. To, to have included it, that is, to have included the wanderings of Hurin in the, in the Silmarillion, to have included it, as it seemed to me, would have entailed a huge reduction, indeed an entire retelling of a kind that I did not wish to undertake. And since the story is intricate, I was afraid that this would produce a dense tangle of narrative statement, with all the subtlety gone, and above all, that it would diminish the fearful figure of the old man, the great hero, Thalion the Steadfast, furthering still the purposes of Morgoth, as he was doomed to do. But it seems to me now, many years later, to have been an excessive tampering with my father's actual thought and intention, thus raising the question whether the attempt to make a unified Silmarillion should have been embarked on. That last sentence really jumps out, right? Um, whether the attempt to make a unified Silmarillion should have been embarked on. Um, I don't recall, Christopher, at any earlier point, um, stating, basically doubting whether or not even attempting the Silmarillion was a good idea, right? Um, you know, in the early days of the history of Middle-earth, I think in some ways it was easier because he was, um, he was presenting sort of this very early material, which the narrative had, like, Tolkien's thought and stories and writings had in most cases you know, moved past those things. And so, like, giving earlier versions is sort of one thing, right? What is clearly happening as Christopher is going through these last three volumes of the history of Middle-earth is he's coming to the place, to the places, not where he's giving the earlier versions uh, of what he gave in the Silmarillion, but where he's giving later versions which he chose not to include, right? The things that he omitted. And he's... Um, you know, sort of talking about the reasons why they were omitted, and several of the, um, you know, the 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 we, we've talked about, 
you know, his uh, his editorial approach to the Silmarillion. He's discussed it, right? Um, that he wanted the, in every case, the latest work and the completest, the latest, completest version written by his father that could be made consistent with the rest of the story. But that's the rub, right? And that's where I think it's what his emphasis on the unified um, uh, Silmarillion there uh, is, I think, the key point. I don't think that he's here doubting whether, you know, any publication was a good idea. I think that what he's doubting is his choice to try to present it as a unified Silmarillion. And the thing that seems to me more and more apparent as we go through the War of the Jewels is that there is a, there's a divergence. The further we go through Tolkien's life, right, through his own chronology, um, in particular, these stages, again, these last three volumes, this post-Lord of the Rings stuff, I think that we can see an increasing divergence, not just divergence between what Tolkien himself was writing in his later years and what he wrote earlier on, but what he was writing in his later years and what Christopher admired most, right? Um, Christopher, I've been arguing um, in a couple places that I think that we can see that Christopher is not in sympathy, uh, at least not in perfect sympathy, <clears throat> with his father's moving towards um, the like really intensive world building and the in close narrative uh, of the uh, of his later writings. I think that we can see why. Uh, I think this seems to me to be why, I should say. Um, he left out all the stuff that um, uh, was included in The Nature of Middle-Earth recently. All that stuff about the... Um, it's not just that he didn't give all the math, right? All of the, 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 the numerical tables um, on, you know, Elvish reproduction. Um, that got included, you know, that were given, provided to us in the nature of Middle-earth. It's not just that he skipped the tables, right? Um, he doesn't even talk about the, the tables, <laughs> right? He doesn't, he, he and again, I think, um, uh, I think that we can see Christopher didn't, he didn't like that stuff. Um, and I think we'll see a couple examples in today's discussion where we can see how some of the editorial choices that he's making. So again, he's, he, he, he's chosen, I want to present a unified Silmarillion, but that's not just unified in content, right? It isn't only that he is trying to find the versions of the stories that will match and fit well together. The, those, as far as like narrative terms, like plot, and character reasons, right? Um, it's not just that. There's also a stylistic unity that Christopher wanted, that Christopher was 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 looking for. He wanted to uh, he wanted to present a unified Silmarillion in the mode of the Silmarillion that he himself loved most, that he himself admired most, and that was the Silmarillion of told of like. The, the Quintus Silmarillion, right, from 1937 um, and its later revisions. Um, the Quentin Alderinwa revised into the Quintus Silmarillion. That Quintus Silmarillion, that's, 
we, we've seen already numerous passages in this book in which Christopher has praised that approach and talked about how much he likes and admires. Um, uh, not He's not using those words. He's not saying, like, I really like this and I totally admire this. But the praise that he heaps upon that particular style, the Silmarillion style, um, again, the Quinta Silmarillion style, that sort of remote, the you know, the, the sort of the perfection of the plot summary genre, right, that Tolkien was delivering. Um, but, um, but again, the further you get into Tolkien's writings after, you know, 1954, um, the more and more clear it becomes that Tolkien is moving away from that, that that is no longer Tolkien's goal in writing the Silmarillion stories. And so, so much of this latter stuff is at odds, not only because the story is changing and developing and he's introducing new characters and changing characters. And yeah, there, there are those problems and that still exists, but he was going stylistically in a very different direction. And Christopher, um, didn't want that. Right. He and and he couldn't have done it. I mean, even if he had been like, "Okay, Dad, whatever you say." Right. Like, I don't think it's nearly as good, but um, you know, we'll we'll you know produce your story that he couldn't have done. It. There isn't enough. Right. Um, it was only the kind of bits and bobs that he was working on at this point that got that kind of treatment. Um, so the choice to say. You know, Dad, your will be done was not in his power unless he was prepared to rewrite all of the other stuff in that mode. Right. So, again, I, I as usual, I will make my normal, uh, you know, apologies and say I'm not actually, um, you know, I'm not criticizing Christopher here. I'm not I'm not saying that I think he's doing a bad job. Um, I just I think that that tension between his own stylistic preference, like his favorite parts of his father's writing, right? Um, and where his father was going, that, that, that tension, that friction, that disparity is growing more and more visible as we go through this later material. Um, uh, and I think that that's... That, and this is why I think we're seeing him wondering if a unified Silmarillion should have been embarked on at all. Again, I don't think that that means no publication. I think that it means... He's imagining perhaps uh, the way to go might have been not to just present the Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien as he did, but instead to do a collection, a more um, uh, unfinished tales kind of approach, basically, to the first stage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree. I, I see there are uh, you know, several people talking about... Um, uh, 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 Tirithon is saying that it seems like Christopher as an editor grew and changed over the years. Um, it, it is true. I mean, and you can see that too, right? When he's looking back in 19, he doesn't, this is not Christopher's vocabulary because he is much more sophisticated in this, but there have been many places where, in my paraphrase, we can see him looking back at things that he did in 1977 and saying, I was a complete doofus back then. I did not get this, and now I see this much better, and I would have done this much differently and much better. There are definitely times um, where we can where we can see that. Um, uh, but, um, 
but yeah, I think it's it's in some ways, Tirithon. I think one of the factors that we can see is that in his early like the change, his attitude towards it here, right? And again, not just his assessment of some of the choices that he made, but um, you know his editorial choices. But um, when he's considering the whole project, it seems that he is now less confident in some ways than he was before that um, in the early days he was moving more rashly and he was making some of the kinds of changes that he now questions whether it was right to have done that he was more intrusive in you know 1973 through 7 um, than he would sort of dare to be or think best to be um, if he were doing it now, uh, you know, now being in the late 80s. When was the War of the Jewels? Early 90s now by then? I'm forgetting my my publication dates on these. Just looking it up. When was War of the Jewels was published in 94? Okay, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, by 1994, we're now... You know, we're now substantially along. You know, we're, we're, we're 17 years after the publication of The Silmarillion. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay, anyway, let's move on and see some of the other examples that I was talking about. So, in the Alfwina, um, the Alfwina chapter, the Alfwina and uh, Deer Havel chapter, uh, we see Tolkien returning to the frame. Um, and I love, I mean, you guys know, I love, I, my ears pick up whenever, my ears perk up whenever Alfwina, uh, comes up, uh, in these later books. Um, I was really interested to see him coming back to the Turin story or as he was coming back to the Turin story, asserting a, a new frame for it. Right. Um, and not only that he was providing a frame but the kind of frame he was providing and the kind of detail that he went into with it. I think this is really, really cool. Okay, a new frame. So, Turin Turumarth. Here begins that tale which Alfwina made from the, Hurin, from the Hurinian, which is the longest of all the lays of Beleriand now held in memory in Arisea. But it is said there that, though made in elvish speech and using much elvish lore, especially of Doriath, this lay was the work of a mannish poet, Deerhavel, who lived at the havens in the days of Arendel, and there gathered all the tidings and lore that he could of the house of Hador, whether among men or elves, remnants and fugitives of Dorloman, of Nargathrond, or of Doriath. From Mablung he learned much, and by fortune also he found a man named Andvir, and he was very old, but was the son of that Androg, who was in the outlaw band of Turin, and alone survived the battle on the summit of Amon-Ruth. Otherwise, all that time between the flight of Turin from Doriath and his coming to Nargothrond and Turin's deeds in those days would have remained hidden, save that little that was remembered among the people of Nargothrond concerning such matters as Gwyndor or Turin ever revealed. In this way, also, in this way also the matter of Meme and his later dealings with Hurin were made clear. This lay was all that dear Havel ever made, but it was prized by the elves and remembered by them. Dear Havel, they say, perished in the last raid of the sons of Fanor upon the havens. 
Okay, so this is the, there are two versions of this frame. This is the A version. This is the, the earlier version of this frame. Um, uh, Christopher emphasized that he thought very little time had passed between the two different drafts of this frame, which is an interesting, interesting thing to note. Um, but um, notice that um, the, um, okay, so... Um, First, notice the point of view of the frame. The point of view of this frame is from the the word the speaker of this paragraph is the modern translator, right? The person who is in the same position as the speaker of the prologue, the narrator of the prologue in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, that is to say, the modern researcher who has found the ancient document and translated it into modern English, right? Um, that is the point of view from which this frame is given. That's important because we'll come back to this, of course, in the second draft uh, of the frame. Um, and it tells us all about this. I love the emphasis that... So I love the emphasis that Tolkien is placing here on the textual history and the eyewitness research that went into this, right? Um, this is leaning very heavily in the direction of the frame narrative, by which I mean, without the frame, the tale is just being told from a third-person omniscient point of view, right? We're just to assume that the narrator knows the whole story for reasons, right? Um, the narrator is not in any way a character in the story, and we're not given, like, we're not invited. Um, we're not invited really at almost any point in the published Silmarillion because of the absence of the frame. We're not invited to ask the question, how do they know this? How do they know who said what to whom in that room over there, right? Um, because, again, it's given within, generally, the frame of, a, of, a, of, of an omniscient third-person narrative. Here we see Tolkien leaning heavily, as I say, in the opposite direction of that. He is not only saying, hey, man, this is not a, an omniscient narrator. This is a story that was written by a dude. And let me tell you about the dude. Right? Let me tell you about the dude, Dear Havel, who wrote this story. Um, and when he, where he was. When he wrote it. Where he wrote it. Why he wrote it. Right, he wrote it because he was of the house of Hador. Well, it doesn't say here that he was of the house of Hador. Um, it just says that he gathered all of the he that he was a human, and that he gathered all the tidings and lore that he could of the house of Hador. Right. So this guy wanted to tell the story of the house of Hador, despite the fact that the house of Hador's story was enormously depressing, and so he made it happen. Right. He brought it all together. So the story. So already this contextualizes the Turin story in some really important ways that this is not a story that is being looked at by the elves. Right. This is not the story of Turin Turambar as seen from afar by the Noldor. Right. Or told from the perspective of of Doriath. Right. Um, this is told from the perspective of a human and a human who was focused on telling the story of the House of Hador, right? That provides a really, really interesting, um, a really, really interesting context 
for the story. It really does put the Turin story, I think, in a significant and in a different frame. Um, I had always felt that the Turin story was the most human story, like the, the most human-focused story. If there is a single story in the published Silmarillion, with the possible exception of the Akalabeth, that really focuses on the human condition, like the human story, uh, as opposed to the elf story. Um, I, I, I would always have said, you know, from my earliest days of reading the Silmarillion, that it was, that it was the Turin story. Um, and here we see Tolkien, as I say, leaning into that heavily. But of course, he doesn't only, here in this frame, give us the context of who wrote it. He, and he doesn't just place him in a time and place and give us a motivation. He also gives us his research, uh, you know, he gives us his bona fides as a researcher. How did he come? He even has to invent a new character, Anvir, who is not in the original. Endrog, of course, is a major character in the original. He's the jerk, right? Um, uh, but Anvir, um, he has to invent Anvir because he wants an eyewitness. He wants an eyewitness who survived Amunruth so that Dear Havel, Dear Havel can, can find out that story, right, can hear about that story. And that he can, that, you know, Tolkien can justify the entire, I mean, he, he, he's going through and thinking, in order for a human poet to write this story, what would they have to have done? What would they have to have, whom, you know, would they have to have interviewed in order to know it? Um, and, and he worked that out. Mablung. And how beautiful is that, right? You think about Mablung and his, his role at the end of the story, right? Um, the idea that Mablung was the source of the end of the Turin story, right? As well as much of the, um, you know, all the, um, um, the, the business with the trial, uh, you know, of Hurin, the, the, all the, the Doriath stuff, right? The, um, what's his name? I'm getting old. I'm blanking on the the, the dude whose face um, Turin smashes with the cup. I'm completely blanking on his name, probably because I'm thinking of trying to think of both his old names, or or Ordoff and uh, uh, and his new name, Cyros. Oh, phew. Okay, yes, Cyros. Um, Anyway, yeah, like all that stuff, right? Um, he could, he could, he could get off of uh, off of Mablung, right? And there were folks from Nargothrond to interview about the Nar the Nargothrond portion, right? Anyway, it's it's fun, but you see this kind of immediacy, right? Um, the way in which Tolkien is investing here, um, the way in which Tolkien is investing in the the reality of these stories. Right? Because, of course, the story of Deir Havel and how he came by this story, how he constructed his one great life's work, right, um, is only part of the story. The other part of the story is how it came to us, because you've got to explain that, too. You have to explain not only how Deir Havel comes to know all this stuff, you've got to explain how we're coming to read it at all, right? And so the modern translator is telling us about Alfwina, 
who got the story from Eresia. So the 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 writings of Deir Haval were taken to Tolaresia um, after the War of Wrath. So when Alfwina makes it to Tolaresia, Book of Lost Tales fashion, and hears the stories from there, he gets, he writes a version, right? He translates it into Old English. And it, that is what is being translated for us by our modern translator, who is... Um, the speaker, right, of this frame narrative. So we see much interest by Tolkien. Um, much interest by Tolkien in putting together these kinds of pieces, in putting this sort of frame, which explains all of that stuff. How was this story written? Who knew the stuff in here? in order to write it. How was it collected? How was it preserved? How did it come down to us? Right? Um, I think it's pretty clear that Tolkien's ideal version of the Silmarillion includes all of those things. Right? He's had that impulse literally from the very beginning. Right? Back in the Book of Lost Tales. And he still has that impulse. And if anything, the impulse is strengthening here. Right? Now, um... Keep in mind, this is one of those editorial choices that Christopher had to make, right? When he cut all of the frame elements. And once again, as you see, you can see the sort of divergence, right? Um, I think this is not the kind of thing that Christopher... He didn't have an option to include it. Again, I'm not saying he should have included it. um, But I think this is the kind of thing that Christopher is less interested in. Um, I love this stuff. This version, uh, sorry, did I skip something? Uh, I feel like I started in the middle of a sentence. Oh, well, anyway. This version into modern English, that is, forms of English intelligible to living users of the English tongue, who have some knowledge of letters and are not limited to the language of daily use from mouth to mouth, does not attempt to imitate the idiom of Alfwina, nor that of the Elvish, which often shows through, especially in the dialogue. But since it is even to elves now a tale of long ago, and depicts high and ancient persons and their speech, such as Thingol and Melian, there is in Alfwina's version, and clearly was in Deer Havel's day, much archaic language of words and usage, and the older and nobler elves do not speak in the same style as men, or in quite the same language as that of the main narrative. There are therefore here retained similar elements. It is for this reason, for example, that Thingol's speech is not that of our present day. For indeed the speech of Doriath, whether of the king or others, was even in the days of Turin more antique than that used elsewhere. One thing, as Meme observed, of which Turin never rid himself, despite his grievance against Doriath, was the speech that he had acquired during his fostering. Though a man, he spoke like an elf of the hidden kingdom, which is as though a man should now appear, whose speech and schooling until manhood had been that of some secluded country, where the English had remained nearer to that of the court of Elizabeth I than of Elizabeth II. Okay, so again, this is our modern narrator, right, who's talking about Elizabeth II, right? Uh, So this is our modern narrator speaking to us here, right? This is still in... This is not 
a private note. This is not a note by Christopher. This is not a private note by J.R.R. Tolkien, right, to himself or whatever. This is part of, like, this would have been, been included in the text, right? Um, and he is speaking in the voice, not in his own voice, um, as the author of this text. He is speaking in the voice of the translator who is explaining his own translation, right? What is he explaining? He's explaining why there's so much archaic language. Why, when you read the story of Turin Turambar, like when you pick up the children of Hurin and read it, you may find that it's not normal modern speech. It may seem strange, stilted. People might talk differently. There are reasons for this, he says. Um, some of you may be remembering some of the letters that he wrote defending this even in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, why do, you know, characters in The Lord of the Rings not talk like normal people? And, you know, um, that, by the way, would be high on my list. If you wanted, um, if somebody asked me, not that anyone would do this or that I would help them, but if somebody were going to meet Tolkien and came to me and said, what's a question that I could ask that'll really get Tolkien riled up? <laughs> I would really like to get Tolkien ranting about something. Um, but I don't want to offend him, um, you know, or just be rude. So is there something I could ask him about um, that would get him worked up and rolling, right? I would, uh, I would possibly suggest that question. Why don't people in the Lord of the Rings just talk like normal people? Um, <laughs> that would, I think I would, I would get the conversation going right along, I suspect. Um, and again, there's, we can see some of his letters where he talks about and gives examples, um, of these, uh, of these kinds of things. So in part, I think we can see, you know, he's making some of the same arguments here. Um, but the things that I would point to, uh, two things that I find most interesting here are first that he has in-world and he has both... So the two things I find most interesting here is he has both in-world and in-text explanations for these things, like in-language explanations. The, the in-world explanation are things like the more antique language of Doriath, right? People in Doriath just talked differently. And so that's been preserved. Alfwina preserved it, even. Like, he tried to reflect in his own word choices in Old English to convey the tone, to convey the feel of the antique speech of Doriath. Um, and so, uh, you know, our narrator here, as a faithful translator is attempting to do the same thing in modern English. So, if people speak archaically, that's why. Right? Um, but the in-text reason is the way that he is the way that he is reverse engineering the linguistic, like the, the, the linguistic trail. Right? The translation history of the text. He wrote a text in English, right? In relatively modern English, right? Um, and no, I love all of his qualifications about that, 
right? <laughs> How he's essentially saying, um, this story is written in English, which counts as modern English on a kind of technicality, <laughs> right? Um, but anyway, um, he starts with having written a thing in English. And now he is imagining, um, he, he is sort of imagining back into the, sort of weaving into the fabric of what he's already written retroactively, right? That there are two, at least two, if not three different linguistic stages behind that, right? So his modern English is a rendering into modern English of the Anglo-Saxon of Alfuina, right? The old English of Alfuina. But Alfuina's old English was translating from the Elvish. And there are places, especially in the dialogue, where his old English idioms, like the way that he is speaking in old English, is informed by like you can tell that he's kind of thinking in Elvish there, or at least he's trying to render like people who think in Elvish, right? Even though he's doing it in Anglo-Saxon, um, and um, and then of course even behind that you have the complicated linguistic situation of Elvish itself, right? And the distinctions between the speech of of Doriath and and other Elvish tongues, even other Elvish versions of, you know, even other dialects of Sindarin, basically. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's really cool to see Tolkien leaning into all that stuff and building up this sort of, this complicated structure. So again, far from, far from the concept of a frame for the Silmarillion losing steam over time. It's gaining steam, man. This is getting more and more complicated all the time. Um, and by the way, I am... Um, I... Um, yeah, so... Um, Scott, you were asking about Rumil. Um, Rumil was originally a character in the Book of Lost Tales frame. He was one of the elves that uh, that Ariel originally changed to Alfwina later met, um, uh, who is telling stories and such. Um, later, Rumil is made the narrator, who then and is kind of supplanted um, later on by Pengalod um, when he invents Pengalod later on. That's a really crude summary of the whole thing, but um, uh, anyway, as I say, it's definitely not. Um, it's definitely not losing steam. You know, the other thing I couldn't help but think of, um, uh, the, uh, well, sort of two things. Um, one was, I was, um, I was thinking, I couldn't help but think of my own recent experiences with this kind of thing of, reading an English translation of a different language, which is of somebody who's thinking in another language. Um, I've been doing a, uh, a Bible study on first John, uh, on Sunday afternoons. And, um, there've been a number of times when we're looking at English translations of 
the Greek of somebody who's clearly thinking in Hebrew, especially the poem that he writes in the middle of chapter two, which is totally a Hebrew poem, but written in Greek and translated into English. Um, uh, and it's really, really interesting to kind of, you can you can really begin to sort of see some of that stuff kind of coming through uh, the text. So I was I was I was thinking about like, yeah, I'm like, I can imagine exactly the situation that our narrator is our theoretical situation that our narrator is describing. But but the other thing that I was thinking of was um, uh, Sparrow Alden's theory about um, the hyphenated words. Right. When uh, when Tolkien uses peculiar peculiarly hyphenated words in uh, uh, in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. What he's doing is sort of implying that this thing, which is not a normal compound word in English, um, but that that's, that word is, there's a special word for that um, in the original languages that he's translating from, right? Um, I, uh, I, I always loved this theory. Um, and that is exactly the kind of thinking that he is doing here. And um, I would say there are many people who have heard that theory and said, oh, but I don't believe that Tolkien was thinking that at all when he wrote that. Like when he wrote The Hobbit, I don't think that he was, you know, his imagination of the linguistic situation and the translation of, you know, like the idea that it was written in Westron and then translated to modern English. He didn't have that in mind when he was writing The Hobbit, so he couldn't have been thinking that way. No, but this is exactly how he does that kind of thing, right? That's, it's exactly the kind of thing that he himself loved to retroactively impose upon his text, as he's doing right here, right? Um, and um, so I still love that theory, um, actually. And it, again, it seems to me exactly, to me, it doesn't matter so much if that's what Tolkien had in mind when he wrote them. But it's exactly, I love the theory because it's exactly how it like should work, right? How I, I think that Tolkien himself would love that theory, basically. <laughs> Not that I'm saying, again, Tolkien was always thinking that explicitly when he did that while he was writing. I love that theory because I think Tolkien would love that theory. <laughs> so anyway, um, all right, let's keep going because it gets even cooler. Here's... Um, Here's the later section. Here's here's the, the second draft. At least a bit of it. This lay was all that Deer Havel ever made, but it was prized by the Eldar, for Deer Havel used the grey elven tongue, in which he had great skill. He used that mode of elvish verse, which is called Long Space Left in Typescript, which, <laughs> which is a great name for a, a mode of elvish verse, which was of old proper to the Narn. But though this verse mode is not unlike the verse of the English, I have rendered it in prose, judging my skill too small to be at once shop and wallstod. Even so, my task has been hard enough, and without the help of the elves could not have been completed. I have not added to dear Haval's tale, nor omitted from it anything that he told, neither have I changed the order of his history." But on matters that seemed of interest, or that were become dark with the passing of the years, I have made notes, whether within the tale or upon its margins, according to such lore as I found in Arisea. I just love this. Okay, <laughs> you see the major difference between the first and the second draft of the 
of the of the of the thing. And of course, you 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 know my love for looking at the bits that he's corrected, right? The the bits that he's changed, um, because I love to see they show us the vector, the creative vector of Tolkien's mind, right? What direction was his mind moving? So I love the crossouts, right? Um, because I love to see the direction that his mind, where his mind went first and the direction that his mind is going afterwards. And we can see this entire, these two drafts of this frame as a kind of cross out in that same way. He's crossed out the entire first one and he's written a new one. Why? What did he change? He took out the voice of the modern translator and he put it straight back into Alfwina's own voice. He wanted to preserve the experience. So he's going to now make the modern translator a silent partner in this whole thing. Yes, we're reading modern English, right? But that's not what's important. We are being given with, you know, through as, uh, um, uh, you know, as, 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 as light a glass as possible. Um, we're, as lightly as possible, I should say, perhaps through 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 the glass or in the glass, um, we are seeing Alfwina's story. It's the voice of Alfwina that we that he wants us to hear. This is Alfwina's story, in which Alfwina is going to protest that he has not added nor omitted anything. That he told and he hasn't changed, you know, in which he's saying, this is not my story at all. This is Dear Heval's tale, um, which I'm very grateful to the elves for helping me translate. Right. Um, so. Again, we see him. Loving the frame, loving the frame um, and really wanting to invest in the frame and notice the glimpse that we get of the form that he anticipates the Narn taking it's going to be a narrative with footnotes by Alfwina right the notes that he's made about things that were become dark with the passing of of the years the things, you know, presumably that Alfwina himself was asking questions of the elves of Teleresia about, right? Um, but um, either within the tale or upon its margins, he's, he's, he's glossed it, right? Um, and uh, he's warning us that he's done a gloss. That is so cool! Oh, man, I would so have loved... Can you imagine, like, a version of the Silmarillion? which is like um, an illuminated manuscript with marginal glosses by Alfwina. Oh, man, that is so cool, right? Um, notice what he says about the form, about the verse mode. So Dear Haval wrote in verse. He wrote in verse... Um, he used that mode of Elvish verse, which was of old proper to the Narn. So that is, they had a mode for this kind of story, and he used that verse. And then he throws out that delightful line. But though this first mode is not unlike the verse of the English, 
See what that means? See what Tolkien just claimed? That how how did the elves deem it proper to write a story like this? How should you tell a story like the story of the children of Hurin? Answer, in alliterative verse, of course, just like Tolkien did back in the 20s, right? The alliterative children of Hurin is the original model, right? That's doing it proper. That's what the Elvish verse itself was like. So the very fact that he says, hey, actually, you know, Elvish poetry, very much like Anglo-Saxon poetry, in fact, right? Um, love that, love that, right? So, and so this is Alfwina, though, apologizing. Alfwina's like, yeah, so even though to some extent I had a kind of head start, right? I mean, like, you'd think I could just render it in alliterative verse in, 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 in Old English, when he says English, of course, he's speaking of Old English, right? Um, Alfwina is, right? You'd think he could render it into his English in alliterative verse because English does alliterative verse all the time, right? But he says, yeah, no, no, I can't. Um, my skill is too small to be at once shop and wallstod, to be at once poet and interpreter. He's like, I can't do both at the same time. Um, somebody, maybe could try to be both shop and wallstalled at the same time, but I, I, I can't. I can't. Um, he's just going to be wallstalled instead. So he's translated it into um, Old English prose instead. Um, so cool. So cool. Um, as I say, I just love the... Um, I just love the frame and I love the way that he's going. Notice how detailed it is, how even in this frame stuff, Tolkien is moving in that direction of like, I want this realistic document. I hate that word. It's a cop out word, but I'll still use it. Um, that this like breathing document, this thing that has, as it were, a life of its own, right? And is not just a, you know, I mean, I, like increasingly it seems that Tolkien feels just writing a third-person omniscient story without explanation of who wrote this down, how did they know what they wrote down, how did it come to us, who translated it? What are the effects of that translation? Um, you know what? I, I, you know how has the translation altered things, or how is the, how have the, the 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 process of translation impacted the story? You know, if you're not going to answer all those, it's just it's kind of a cop out, right? I mean, it's kind of the it's kind of the soft option, right? Um, it's uh, it is so cool. Here's Christopher's notes on. Um, the frame here. It is therefore very notable that at this relatively late date he was propounding such a view of the transmission of the Narni Hin Hurin in contrast to the statement cited in volume 10 that's in Morgoth's Ring that the three great tales must be Numenorean and derived from matter preserved in Gondor. The second of the great tales being the Narni Hin Hurin. 
striking also is the information in both texts that the verse form of Dir Haval's lay bore some likeness to the verse known to Alfwina, meaning, of course, the Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse, but that because Alfwina was no shop, see note 6, he translated it into Anglo-Saxon prose. I do not know of any other statement bearing on this. It is tempting to suspect some sort of oblique reference here to my father's abandoned alliterative way of the children of Hurin uh, of the 1920s, but this may be delusory. Well, if so, as you can see, I immediately leapt to the same delusion. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the the nod back to his own alliterative version of the children of Hurin feels to me... Far from being delusory, it seems to me inescapable. But I think that's just a uh, that's just a reflection of how much more careful a scholar <laughs> Christopher is than I am. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so two comments. I will make two comments on Christopher's two comments here. Um, I'll start with the second one first. Again, it seems to me that what Christopher is emphasizing here is that there isn't any other evidence to believe that Elvish poetry was alliterative in form and bore a likeness to Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse. Um, it's a fascinating idea, but this is I, so I believe what Christopher is emphasizing is that that he that he doesn't know of any other place um, where Tolkien implied any such thing about elven elvish prosody, basically. Um, as for the first part, the first part I'm particularly interested, just given my own interest in the frame of the Silmarillion, um, and I see what he means. Um, it might seem. It might seem odd. When I first read this, I was like, I didn't follow what Christopher was saying because I was thinking, wait, why should the Lay of Deerhaval, the, the story of the Lay of Deerhaval, be in any contradiction to what he said in Morgoth's Ring, um, that the three great tales must be Numenorean, derived from matter preserved in Gondor? Well, of course. You've got Deerhaval is in the havens of Syrian. He writes his Lay. Right. His leg gets taken back to Toleresia. You know, Pangawad writes it up with everything else in Toleresia. Um, it gets sent from Toleresia from, to uh, Numenor, right, for their own records and edification, um, where it is collected and preserved by Elendil and brought to Middle-earth and then preserved in Gondor. Sure. What's difficult about that? But then, of course, I immediately see, and this is the thing that I'm really interested in and curious about, because there are, two, of the frame of the frame mechanisms that Tolkien developed for the Silmarillion, there are two different ones, and they really are in contradiction to each other. Um, or at least they're two independent paths. It's possible they could both exist in world, but they wouldn't be the same. And it's all about Alfwina at the end of the day. One is the pure, like the textual provenance chain that I just said, right? Um, how is it that the story of Turin Turumbar was preserved? 
there are two answers to that. Answer number one is Dear Haval wrote it, Pangoad edited it, right? Sent it to Elendil, who curated it, um, uh, brought it to Gondor, where it was preserved. It then presumably was transmitted to Rivendell, where Bilbo read it and heard it and translated it and included it in his translations from the Elvish, which gets included in the Red Book, and then eventually in Findigil's copy of the copy of the Red Book. And that survived so that our modern researcher, who is doing the modern English translation for our benefit, found it. And that's how the tale of Dear Haval comes down to us. Right? That, sure, yep, that absolutely works. But notice who does not play a role in that? Alfwina does not play a role in that because the Alfwina uh, line is completely divergent from that chain of custody, right? The Alfwina story is that Alfwina, who is an Anglo-Saxon mariner, finds himself in Toleresia sometime, you know, a thousand years ago or so, a little more than a thousand years, maybe 1,200 years ago. Um, and he finds himself in Toleresia. He hears the stories. He writes a version of the whole Silmarillion, right? His Book of Lost Tales. Um, he writes his version in Old English, in Old English prose, just like he's talking about doing here, right? He writes the stories down in Old English prose and brings them back to England. And that's where we get them from. And so our modern translator discovers, you know, either, I mean, probably not the actual, man, the actual manuscript written by, uh, by Alfwina himself, but a copy of that manuscript. And, and I guess enough textual evidence to be able to say, here is, here is Alfwina's um, uh, version, his Book of False Tales, right? Um, and that is... That version, the the Old English version written by Alfwina, as I say, is entirely independent of the other chain of custody that goes from Deer Havel straight down through Bilbo towards us, right? Um, and I don't think that there is any way that these two different frame concepts can really be reconciled. Um... I'm not saying that it's impossible that they would both exist. They could both exist, right? They could easily both exist. Alfwina could have made it to Toleresia um, and gotten his stories and brought home his Old English version of it, right? Well, meanwhile, Pangolad sends off a copy of, you know, Dear Havel's story to Elendil, and off we go, right? Um, so both... Totally could exist. They don't contradict each other in that sense. It's not to say that it's impossible that they could both exist, but it's impossible that one text comes through. But like they, they are, they are two totally independent um, mechanisms. And Christopher, in Volume One, in the Book of Lost, in the prologue to the Book of Lost Tales, sort of his prologue to the entire history of Middle Earth. Um, he said that he regretted putting the fr not putting you know he 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 regretted not putting the frame in, but the reason was he wanted hobbits um 
that he felt confident that, you know, Bilbo's translations from the Elvish were the Silmarillion and that that was his father's vision for like the new framing mechanism. Right. Um, that we were that 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 was the one that he should have, you know, like it would have been better. Again, this Christopher couldn't have done it. He would have had to make it all up himself, and he, he wasn't going to do that. Um, but he's like, that's that's the frame that it needed, right? Except, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that that's the frame that was actually in Tolkien's mind. It's not that I disagree. At, are, are the translations from the Elvish to the Silmarillion? Totally. 100%. Yes. But does that mean that that frame... The Deer Haval, oh, let's just start with Pangalod, right? The Pangalod, Elendil, Gondor, Elrond, Bilbo frame. Is that the frame that he has in mind as he is developing and rewriting the Silmarillion in his later years? No. No. At least, mostly not. He keeps coming back to Alfwina, including in this rich and beautiful, um, you know, framing essay that he does here. So, anyway, okay. But let's move on to Maeglin. Uh First, I, I, I won't talk about this for too long. I just wanted to... Um, sometimes when we're discussing... Sometimes when you're reading, especially if you allow yourself to skim, like, I, I don't know about you, but it's possible, and no judgment, that there might be some of you when you're reading the history of Middle-earth who, you know, you're in those paragraphs at the beginning where Christopher is like the A text and the B sub one text and, um, you know, was written in manuscript form by um, maybe your eyes glaze a little bit at that point and you kind of skip down to the juicy bits. You'd be forgiven if you want to skip down to the juicy bits and skip over that textual stuff. Um, one of the consequences of reading these texts as Christopher has so beautifully presented them to us is that we can forget the hideous mass, <laughs> the textual mass that underlies it, right? Um, and um, uh, <laughs> so I just wanted a, just a little reminder of like what we're actually reading here. So, okay. The B text was corrected. And, and it, so there was an A text, which was, I, I've skipped a bit, right? The A text was the manuscript. This is of the, the, the Miglin stuff. The A text was the manuscript. And then later on, Years later, a typescript of that has been made, which is the B text, right? Um, so somebody somebody typed that out. The B text was corrected and annotated in ballpoint pen. And so also was the carbon copy. So it was typed on carbon paper. So it was typed. So now we have two duplicate copies of the typescript, each of which is separately annotated in ballpoint pen. And so also was the carbon copy, but not in the same ways. The original manuscript A also received some late, late emendations, which do not appear in B as typed. Moreover, a great deal of late writing in manuscript from the same time was inserted into B1, which is the non-carbon thing, with other similar material overlapping in content found elsewhere. For this, my father used scrap paper supplied to him by Allen and Unwin, and two of these sheets are publication notes issued on 19 January 1970. Thus, this material is very late indeed, and it is of outstanding difficulty. Right? So... You see what happened, right? 
you see like the glimpse into Tolkien's creative process that we get here. So step one, he sits down and writes, um, uh, writes a manuscript, right? So he writes the story in manuscript. That's step one. Then he puts it away. And he later on finds it, comes back to it, rereads it. And as he's reading it, he writes some annotations and corrections and things, right? Puts it back in the drawer. Years later, he takes it out and he's like, oh, you know what? I really should get this typed because this is hard to read, right? So he has somebody type it onto carbon copy because then there'll be multiple copies and won't that be convenient, right? Okay, so we, now we have multiple TypeScript copies of this. Then later on, he comes back and he finds, he separates the carbon and the original, right? And puts them in different drawers. And then at different times, he reads them and it's like, oh, I'm going to make some changes separately, differently. And then he goes back and he rereads the manuscript again and makes more changes on the manuscript after the other thing's already been typed, right? So in the end, we have three versions of this story, um, all of which have separate annotations done at other random times that you can't tell. This is why Christopher's always talking about like done with a blue nib pen, right? And that kind of thing. He's just talking about the pen and which typewriter it was done on and things. Cause this is the only evidence he has to figure out when on earth Tolkien did this stuff or whether this stuff was done at the same time. Right. So trying to put together like, so Presented with that, with these three copies, one manuscript and two identical typescripts with non-identical annotations, um, all at different times. And now you're Christopher, and you're trying to not only read the manuscript, but you're also trying to figure out, like, so what? What is the authoritative version of this of this thing? Um, but um, anyway, so I just just a little reminder that this is what we are always reading when we are reading. Are we just um, also, in case it seems like I'm giving Christopher a hard time, I want to I want to express how grateful I am, and I know we all are for all the work that he did in this. Um, though I'd also add as a footnote to that little compliment, um, this also, of course, helps to explain why Christopher sometimes makes mistakes, um, and why he may not be you know he only has theories and may not be right about some of those theories. It's you know, he doesn't claim, usually claim more authority than he has about this stuff, because um, this is this is um, of outstanding difficulty, as Christopher Tolkien very rightly says. All right. Um, so uh, let's hear about his heart, his heartbreaking plan. Well, it's heartbreaking to me. The manuscript A, as written, had no title. Later, my father penciled on it of Meglin, which was, of course, Myglin's previous name, changing this to Of Isfin and Glindur. The typescript B has the title as typed Of Myglin, with the subtitle Sister Son of Turgon, King of Gondolin. At the head of the first page of B1, BI, that is uh, B1, um, that's the first type version, the non-carbon, my father wrote that the text is an enlarged version of the coming of Myglin to Gondolin to be inserted in FG in its place and noted that F.G. equals Fall of Gondolin. This can only be a reference to the abandoned tale of Tuor, entitled Of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin, but retitled Of Tuor and His Coming to Gondolin for inclusion in the Unfinished Tales, because that's all he ever actually wrote about, which belongs to the same period as the manuscript A. 
namely 1951. Thus, at this very late date, my father was still holding to the hope of an entirely rewritten story of the fall of Gondolin, of which so little had actually been done in those parts some 20 years before. So the heartbreaking thing, I have frequently said that the long-form tour story, the beginning of which we get at the beginning of the of unfinished tales is the thing I most wish that Tolkien had finished of all of the un, the things that Tolkien didn't accomplish in his lifetime. That's the one that I regret most. And if I had to make one request uh, of a text for him to complete that he had started, it would definitely be um, the tale of Tuor, as he calls it. Um, this idea that. 20 years later, so that was 1951 when he started and did not finish the tale of Tuor. To know that in 1970 he still believed that he was going to go back and he still was planning to go back and finish that. Oh, man. Heartbreaking. <laughs> Heartbreaking. In some ways it'd be almost easier to take if he just, like, you know, set it aside and never came back to it. But that he did, like, he didn't forget about it. Right? He was... Anyway. So the Maiglin chapter uh, in the published Silmarillion, which is all derived from this, um, we can comfort ourselves in knowing that the Maiglin chapter of the published Silmarillion was meant to be a chapter of that book that we won't read. Um, so maybe we should take comfort from the fact that in retrospect... We have more of it than we thought we did. Um, so um, that might be a comforting thought. Or not, possibly. Yes, we'll get it all when we get to Niggles Parish. I hope so. Bricktails, I hope so. Okay. Um, here's a, a snippet. I don't, I, actually, just by the way, a little footnote. I don't have too many things from. Um, I'm now overburdened with passages from the Miglin story that I wanted to talk about. Um, but um, anyway, so just 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 a few bits and bobs here as we go through. Um, this is a little bit of the extra backstory of Ale that he was contemplating. But he was restless and ill at ease in Doriath, and when the girdle of Melian was set about the forest of Regian where he dwelt, he departed. It is thought, though no clear tale was known, that he was captured by orcs and taken to Thangorodrim, and there became enslaved. But owing to his skills, which in that place were turned much to smithcraft and metalwork, he received some favor, and was freer than most slaves to move about, and so eventually he escaped, and sought hiding in Nan Elmoth, maybe not without the knowledge of Morgoth, who used such escaped el slaves uh, to work mischief among the elves. So that he was contemplating uh, making Eol a darker elf in more than one sense, not just a dark elf in the sense of a non-Caliquendi, right? Of uh, um, Not just a Moraquendi in the sense of he didn't go to Valinor, um, but a Moraquendi in the... And not, nor even a Moraquendi in the even more thoroughgoing sense that he didn't even set out for Valinor, right? Was one of the Avari. Um, but he... Um, uh, but he was darkened, in fact, um, that some shadow of evil was 
cast on his heart by by suffering and by the touch of Morgoth by the he was enslaved in Angband and escaped and so that Aeol was a, was as dark as he was not just because he was a bad egg but because he um was one of these elves who had been uh, tormented and tainted and released to work mischief or, you know, allowed to escape to work mischief. Um, yeah. So, um, I think that one, one thing I, so one other thing I'd add about this, Christopher was, when Christopher was commenting on this passage, he was suggesting that Aeol learned his smithcraft in Angband. Um, and Christopher was kind of like uh, dubious about that um, uh, that concept. But I, I don't read this that way. Um, but owing to his skills, which in that place were turned much to smithcraft and metalwork implies to me that he already had these skills and that his, um, you know, he did have Smithcraft and metalwork skills. Um, and that the skill, all of the skills that he had were focused entirely on Smithcraft and metalwork while he was like, that's the work that, um, he had many talents. Aeol had many talents, right? Among his talents was a penchant, you know, a, a penchant for and skill in Smithcraft and metalwork. And, um, that's what he is made to do all day. Um, seeing that he was good at that sort of thing, uh, they kept him right at it um, uh, the whole time that he was an Angband, is how I understand that. Um, which is actually kind of interesting to me because it's, it's I don't think it's attributing to Morgoth. Um, it's, I don't think it's attributing his skill to Morgoth so much as saying that even like, even this the one thing that Aeol was like famous for, apart from being a jerk, um, was a thing which was itself tainted, right? The thing that he had been forced to do as a, a slave labor to the enemy. Um, so that Smithcraft and metalwork isn't just like what he loved and how he expressed his own artistry and his own sub-creative impulses. Um, or rather that his own subcreative impulses had themselves been twisted and tainted by his slavery, by his exploitation, by Morgoth. Um, and um, that's... Uh, that contributes to, to me, the overall theme of this, to make Aeola a more sad character. Um, more pitiable, I think. He's not just... Not just a jerk. He's still a jerk. Um, but um, he's a he's a jerk whose sufferings can you know we can see where where we can see where he got it. We can see where he developed. Um, so, P.S. If you hear people talk about you know say for instance modern action movies or Marvel films or something like that, where they always have to make the bad guys understandable in some way. Like they want to make it, you know, they, they want to, 
um, you know, make us understand the point of view and feel bad for the bad guys and understand where they're coming from. Um, Tolkien did that too. We see Tolkien doing that right here, right? That's precisely what he's doing to Ale, giving Ale a backstory that invites us both to understand how he became the way he was and even to feel pity for him while still perceiving clearly that he is a jerk um, and doing really bad things. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Christopher again. Just a little note I wanted to make sure to touch on and emphasize. But in B1, my father inserted into the typescript a long text on separate pages. And this appears to be the last piece of substantial narrative that he wrote on the matter of the Elder Days. It cannot be earlier than 1970. It begins at the words, It came to pass that at the midsummer, and continues through the flight of Maeglin and Arathel, Aeol's pursuit, and the intervention of Curifin, where it joins the original A text at Until They Reached the Brithiach and Abandoned Their Horses. As has been seen, this story of Maeglin was not written to stand as an element in the Quintus Silmarillion, and the detail of the narrative in this very late interpolation was somewhat reduced in the published text, chiefly by the removal of all the precise timing and numbering of days and a return to the manner of the original, simpler, and more remote narrative. There it is, right? First, before we get there, um, just let's take a moment to take note of this momentous thing. Christopher Tolkien has just told us that this story, the story of Maeglin and his arrival in Gondolin, is the last piece of substantial narrative that Tolkien ever wrote on the matter of the Elder Days. Um, that's a really cool Tolkien trivia question, for the record. Um, but it's... Um, um, Anyway, so that's just, that's just a really cool thing to note. Um, and in this context, I want to come back to Everett, what you were asking just before. Um, uh, it's funny, what you said was his death unexpected. And Everett, I thought you meant Ailes. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a little bit of a surprise, but at the same time, I kind of saw it coming. And then I realized you were talking about Tolkien himself. Um uh, right. Okay. Was his death unexpected? Uh, Tolkien's death unexpected. At 81, wouldn't he have known the need to wrap up a couple of these projects? Um, uh, no, I don't think it, he would have necessarily. So I'm thinking of, if I'm remembering my dates right, can somebody look it up for me? I don't want to get this wrong. When did Edith, Edith die? What's the year of Edith's death? Is it 70? 69? 70? Somewhere in there? 71. Okay. Thank you, JJ. 71. Um, he had retired. And after Edith's death in 71 in particular... He's so in 78, it's still alive. Um, but remember, he goes back and he's given those rooms at Merton College and he sort of sets up there 
you know, on campus there in college at Oxford. Um, and I, th- I suspect, I don't believe that he, you know, knew he only had a, you know, I don't remember when exactly it was that he moved to Burton. It's not too long after Edith's death when he comes back from Bournemouth and, and moves into the rooms in, in, in Merton. But it's it's like early 72. Um, so at that point, he only had like a year and a half left. Did he realize he only had a year and a half left? I don't think he did. Um, I don't see any evidence from his letters that he knew or suspected that. Um, and in 1970, I, you know, he's enjoying retirement. Um and what's more, in 1970, he's living in Bournemouth, which is a, you know, a fashionable watering hole, right? Um, it, this is for Edith, right? W- what Edith wanted. Um, and I, I, I think that he's, um, uh, I think that he is definitely imagining a longer road ahead of him than he probably had. So, no, I don't find it very strange that in 1970 he was still imagining he was going to finish um, The Fall of Gondolin. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, but back to, back to this here. Back to that second paragraph, which I find so telling. Notice how Christopher Tolkien starts doing that um, passive voice thing. And the detail of the narrative in this very late interpolation, right? So, okay, so there's this big chunk of the narrative that Tolkien wrote, the last narrative that he ever wrote on the matter of the Elder Days, that gets inserted into the typescript. Christopher has included that chunk of narrative in the published Silmarillion, but he changes it. He edits it heavily. And note how he explains he edits it. The detail of the narrative was somewhat reduced in the published text, chiefly by the removal of all the precise timing and numbering of days and a return to the manner of the original, simpler, and more remote narrative. He changed it. He edited it to make it sound more Quintus Silmarillion-ish, right? The original, simpler, and more remote narrative that Christopher likes better. Right, that Christopher admires more. Um, he made it less like the um, detailed romance, like the Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien was had taken to writing it. The Maeglin story is being written in that mode. The uh, the Wanderings of Hurin were being written in that mode. Um, we see him in the nature of Middle Earth and all of that, those calculations and stuff. We see him preparing to do the entire mythology in that mode. Um, and Christopher includes this stuff. He's like, I want to include this stuff. This is, this is, this is good stuff, right? But he makes it fit the Quintus Silmarillion style the Quintus Silmarillion structure. Um, and here he gives examples. Okay. So, um, 
here we just have to use it. I mean, I hope you can kind of reread the of Meglin chapter. You know, if you could kind of read the Silmarillion chapter um, side by side with this and you can really feel the difference. So I just have to rely on your memory for now um, of the published Silmarillion text. Um, but here's the version that he actually wrote. Therefore that night, as secretly as they could, they made provision for a journey, and they rode away at daybreak to the north eaves of Nan Elmoth. There, as they crossed the slender stream of Kelon, they spied a watchman, and Maglin cried to him, Tell your master that we go to visit our kin in Aglon. Then they rode on over the Himlad to the fords of Aros, and then westward along the fences of Doriath. But they had tarried over long. For on the first night of the three days' feast, as he slept, a dark shadow of ill foreboding visited Aeol, and in the morning he forsook Nogrod without ceremony, and rode homeward with all speed. Thus he returned some days earlier than Maegwen had expected, coming to Nan Elmoth at nightfall of the day after their flight. There he learned from his watchmen that they had ridden north less than two days before, and had passed into the Himlod on their way to Aglon. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, hear the difference? I mean, again, if you remember the Silmarillion version, the you know the the of my Glenn chapter in the Silmarillion, um, you can hear the difference. You know that there, as they crossed the slender stream of Kelon, they spied a watchman, and my Glenn cried to him. We get we get more dialogue, right? We get this whole business about the. Um, the dark shadow of ill foreboding visiting Aeol as he slept and um, all of this stuff. It's, it's significantly compressed in the original. Um, another uh, delightful one. Um, Kurifin's words. By the laws of the Eldar, I may not slay you at this time. Here is a footnote in the original. Because the Eldar, which included the Sindar, were forbidden to slay one another in revenge for any grievance, however great. Also at this time, Eol had ridden towards Aglon with no ill intent, and it was not unjust that he should seek news of Arathel and Maeglin. Um The ironic restraint, of course, is that uh, um, one, um, the laws of the Eldar that Kurifin are referring to are the laws against, um, well, the rather strict laws about slaying your kin, right? Um, it's very, very much wrong to murder other elves, really under any circumstances. Um, but Kurifin, of course, um, is... Well, I think maybe we should back up and think about all of the times that Kurifin doesn't participate in any kinslayings, right? Because if you think about it, really the majority of his life was spent not killing other elves. Even when, on occasions like this, there was a certain amount of provocation, right? But he doesn't do it most of the time. Really, um, if you take the broad view of things, uh, Kurofin's career of kinslaying it's really just a few isolated incidents um, amidst many, many years of comparatively good behavior. Um, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the irony that I find here. Um, just the fact that Kurofin would be citing a law of the Eldar that says, I am not supposed to kill 
um, uh, I'm not supposed to kill other elves. Do you think Corifin has like um has like a badge, you know, like a little uh, a little token of like how many years he's been he's he's been straight, you know. Like he's like by the laws of the Eldar, I, I may not slay you at this time, and um, you know it's been it's been nine years since I slew my last uh, kinsman. Um, <laughs> so it's been it's it's been centuries actually um, since I successfully uh, killed another elf. So um, uh, yeah, could because I mean, fortunately, parent. Does doesn't doesn't count um but yeah no i think i like the idea of corifin you know kind of keeping track of how many how many days it's been uh since his last kin slaying <laughs> but anyway, I, I like to you know i like to i like to think he was uh he was he was he was really making an attempt there um but um but again notice the the impulse here the impulse to fill out details, right? Um, the impulse to explain, the impulse to get more into the world and the culture and the characters and, you know, all of the things, right? Um, in, whether they're notes. And again, this is the thing that I, one of the reasons why I, why I love, um, uh, the note about Alfwina saying, I'm going to inc- brace yourself. I'm going to go off the text as well. You can see Tolkien preparing to, to release the restraints upon himself. Right. It's right after this, that we get this really long essay, little mini essay describing these laws of the elder, the laws of murder. Right. And, um, you know, this full like legal opinion as to why, um, this whole like assessment of Kurafin and what he was thinking and why and what's going on and how all that works. Um, he, uh, Tolkien loves this stuff, right? And he's loving this kind of thing more and more. Um, he was content in his earlier days to wave his hands, you know, and just be like, they did, they did this, right? But now he wants to, he wants to, uh, uh, to 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 really to really dig in, JJ says. I think in engineering we call this feature creep. Well, yes, yes, it's kind of like that, isn't it, JJ? Um, and again, this is why coming back to, you know, one of my primary themes for the day today. I I don't blame Christopher for making the choice that he made, and I can certainly see how. If you're sitting down to edit the Silmarillion. Um, I can certainly see why the, uh, what was that phrase that he used? Um, simpler and more remote narrative would be very appealing as a mode, right? This I can work with in this way. I can get all of this stuff into one volume. That's like readable and that, you know, you can, uh, you know, pick up without having to get a waiver from the labor union, right? Like it's uh, like, you know, a, a, a version that you'd be allowed to, um, you wouldn't have to pay extra to check into an airplane. Um, like, I, yeah, I can totally see how that was very, very appealing uh, to him and why he wanted to preserve it in that mode rather than indulge um, 
all of the things that Tolkien was apparently aiming to indulge uh, as he was writing this stuff in the later years. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I get it. I'm not saying that I think that Tolkien's... I mean, it's clear, right? I mean, the event proved that Tolkien's attractions in this direction, that his inclinations in this, his narrative inclinations in these directions um, were, um, well, what? Wrong-minded? Unfortunate, at least in some sense, perhaps? Um, certainly, they put paid to any possibility of his ever finishing the Silmarillion. Um, as we see, didn't even manage to finish the Tale of Turin, or sorry, the Tale of Tour, uh, much less the entirety uh, of the Silmarillion in this mode. Um, and I, even those people who really enjoy the math in the nature of Middle-earth, I think, would probably admit that they would rather have more of the tale of Tua written than all of those <laughs> calculations about uh, uh, Elvish. Uh, um, I almost said regeneration. That's not quite right. Reproduction. Uh, reproductive cycles. Um, and I remember, of course, when we were discussing um, the nature of Middle-earth, there were many people openly voicing their frustrations that Tolkien spent so much time doing this instead of writing more of the narrative that we wanted him to write. Um, but anyway, um, I, uh, well, we're coming up on the end. We'll stop here. There are a couple other, I, I, I may give another example or two, um, to begin with next time. Let's, um, Let's carry on, though. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna get too much deeper in the weeds in the in the in the Maiglin stuff. Um, next time, we'll definitely we'll do a, a couple more Maiglin passages. Then we'll get on to the Ents and the Eagles, um, and then go ahead and read the Tale of Years part as well. That will probably be enough for us to go on with. Um, that still brings us. That brings us the end of part three. Um, I doubt we'll get much further than the end of part three. We've got the Quendi and Eldar section after that kind of paging through here. That's really, yeah, just that one big old section. Um, so, yeah, we'll probably have enough to, to talk about with Ends and Eagles and the Tale of Years and then the end of the Maiglin stuff as we go forward. So we'll plan on that for next time. So through the end of part three uh, for, uh, for next time, which I'm hoping will be next week, um, uh, Wednesdays are a little bit that the Wednesdays tend to be a little bit more um, perilous in the summer times because Wednesdays are my wife's day off. And um, in the summertime, when my son is home from school, um, that often means like day trips and stuff happen on Wednesdays. And so um, my Wednesday evenings will at times get interfered with uh, for that reason. But I think I'll be able to be here for the next two Wednesdays. So, um, uh, 
Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. And I will, <laughs> Lord willing, see you guys next week. Bye now.